Hello and welcome to MedTech Monday on the Road Pod. When you start out podcasting, you never think you'll be delivering a masterclass as opposed to just a conversational podcast. But today's episode, like last week's episode with David Mock, is just that. Brian Mullen and Brian Clancy take us to getting your pilot in front of the right people at the right institution to Brian Clancy giving us a deep dive into the world of digital therapeutics. These two individuals have generously provided this information for free. And as we move forward in these episodes of MedTech Monday, they seem to get better and better and more informative. So if you're a MedTech startup, this information is quite valuable. It's hard to find this information just on the web. Thanks for listening, and welcome to MedTech Monday on the Road Pod. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of MedTech Monday. I'm your host, Danielle Sturm, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Tom Chiginski. Good afternoon. Today, we have two guests joining us, two Brians, Brian Clancy and Brian Mullen, who both have backgrounds and deep knowledge in the digital health space. Brian Clancy, who you might know, um, as he is a guest on a previous episode and also a NEMIC Smart Team member, is joining us and representing the digital health world for one of the last times because he has taken a new job offer in a different sector. So we are very excited to be able to get him on to the podcast one last time to share his knowledge in the space for our listeners. Brian Clancy, thank you for joining us. And do you want to tell any new listeners just a little bit about your background um, in the space? And if you can, tell us a little bit about your next endeavor. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Danielle. Um, so um, for the last six years, I've really been furthering uh, the mission of AppScript by Cubia. Um, AppScript is a, a fully uh, funded and founded um, business uh, by Acubia, which is a leading human data science company. Uh, really, the mission of AppScript is to help clinicians to get the right app to the right patient at the right time. And uh, you know, we've really been able to you know grow uh, that capability and really push forward that mission um, over uh, the past uh, number of years. So we're really proud of that uh, work. Um, business is really strong. The broader digital therapeutics and digital medicine space is really strong, but felt that it was a good time to uh, maybe move to a, a new challenge. So we're actively hiring uh, for, for my old job, uh, co-leading the AppScript business. Um, going to be taking a tour of duty in the world of precision oncology um, but I think it's bad luck to say where you're going before your first day. So I'll, I'll hold off on that. Awesome. Thank you very much. And I'm also very excited to introduce um, the other Brian joining us today, Brian Mullen, who's joining us from Nantucket. Um, thank you for joining us, Brian. And for our listeners, will you give a little short introduction about yourself and your background with innovating in the healthcare and digital health space? Sure. Um, my name is Brian Mullen. Um, for the last year, I've been based primarily in Nantucket after I left Brigham uh, in Women's Hospital, part of Mass General Brigham's healthcare system, which formerly was named Partners Healthcare. Sorry for all the names, but they've rebranded uh, a couple of times now. So uh, I was in a digital innovation hub for five years previous. The last year, I, this past year, though, I've been primarily consulting and helping with early stage innovation in the digital health space. Um, innovation management, innovation strategy, uh, both for academic and the academic medical institutions and settings for innovation teams, 
for individual innovators, clinicians, researchers. And primarily, um, I work a lot with the uh, a group called the ADK Group, which is a website and application development firm that has a spe- one of their specialties is within mobile health, mobile health app applications. And we worked, uh, I worked with them previously when I was uh, at Brigham on different different projects. And now I'm helping them in that M Health portfolio that's looking at, we do a lot of work with clinicians and researchers. And I, I act often as the liaison between a clinical innovator and trying to translate that into what that means strategically to move the idea forward, both technically as well as moving it potentially down a commercial pathway so that we can all benefit from those discoveries. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. So um, after hearing about those two backgrounds, I guess you are guessing that we're going to be talking about digital health products today and how to get products to market um, in the space right now. So really what we'll be covering today are the paths companies are taking, what the barriers are in the system, value propositions, how to leverage hospitals, and the term that I just learned in my previous conversation with both Brian's pilot-itis. So I'd love to turn over the conversation to both Brian's as they're the experts in the space, and you'll really enjoy hearing from them talk through this conversation. Um, And I want to kick it off with a question around digital health applications, telehealth, and their customers. So in the medical space, and digital health space, it's well known that usually the end customer is not always the payer for that product. Some technologies work with providers and some don't. So Brian and Brian, what value do digital health applications need to show? Does it change from stakeholder to stakeholder? And does it usually influence that path that they're going to take to market? I I can start. This is Brian Clancy. Um, You know, I think you know, maybe one of the first questions every uh, digital health company needs to ask themselves are really, you know, what is the unmet need that we're trying to address? What is our value proposition? And then the third question is really, well, what customer or what stakeholders, you know, most benefit from that value proposition? And, you know, I think there's different types of unmet needs. Um, For example, there might be inefficiencies in the delivery of care. Um, There might be a lack of access uh, to an existing evidence-based treatment. There might be a complete lack of treatment options uh, in areas such as neurology with autism, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera. And then aligned to those different types of unmet needs, I think that there's different value propositions that uh, digital health companies and products can have, um, and then different customers that map to those different value propositions. So for example, if a company has a really deep value proposition around, for example, enabling better data sharing between patients and their healthcare professional, then maybe that's something that a provider could potentially be interested in, or at least very important uh, for enabling almost by definition. Um, But if you have um, a value proposition that's more, um, let's say, transactional in nature, so let's say uh, the value proposition is help me to 
um, get a prescription for um, a particular uh, type of need very quickly, then maybe I don't need to involve the provider at all because the nature of that particular solution is to transactionally provide access to um, that telehealth consultation that's going to get you that prescription and deliver that particular prescription. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about some of these direct-to-consumer um, type of models like Hims or Lemonade or Roman and um, those types of service providers. But really curious what Brian uh, thinks about this, just given his deep background in provider world. Yeah. Uh, so Brian C, glad you gave those kind of specific examples. As you were speaking, I was trying to think like, what's a quick soundbite, right? Like we live in a soundbite world. So I was trying to like think about that in some of the story, the the many ways I would explain this to at working with both startups, clinicians, uh, being in that hub of the hospital setting. I was also a startup before I spun out a company out of my research as a graduate student and try to do a medical device actually for autism. So like, I, I know it took me three years to get a meeting with somebody at partners healthcare when I was in my startup days. So like I know the pain of this um, on, on so many different sides now, uh, except the insurer side. But I think, I think Brian, as I was listening to you is the first thing to take away. And I, I teach a class at mass art. I try to tell my students this and they all want to change healthcare. They're all design innovation designers. And I'm like, there's a system of care. And it's, there's usually a bigger system that if you don't account for it, you're going to either start in the wrong spot or your value proposition is not going to align or you're not going to com- design a complete enough product for it to be used, implemented, and adopted. And I think in healthcare, you really need to understand that system, at least at a high enough level where you could block out similar to what Brian C. just did for all of us, of all these different kind of ways care is delivered. So the, the interesting thing is that the, the hospital provides so much care, it flows through the hospital. So you know, a lot of people start at the hospital, assume the hospital is, is everything to them. And what gets confused in healthcare, and it's just why it gets interesting, is there's a difference between your user, your buyer, and your payer. Those often don't align in healthcare. So the hospital could be the person who purchases and uses, but not the person who like pays for it. Like they're the consumer. They actually like it goes through there, they vend it, but the payer for it is the insurance company. Right. So or oftentimes the hospital might not pay for anything. They might not actually buy it. They might just use the product and be like a pass-through. But the person who pays for it and uses it is the patient. So like I think Brian Clancy's like those prescri- those prescription digital tools, really the hospital is not using the digital tool. They're they're it's like a medication. We prescribe the doctor might prescribe you a medication. You take the medication. The doctor never sees you take the medication, doesn't give you the medication. They give you a subscription that you go get the medication, then you use it, and then the insurance company pays for it, right? Mm-hmm. But the complicated part of healthcare is if the doctor doesn't believe in that medication and they don't, they're the decider that influences and writes the prescription. So they have to be taken into account for each one of these players, the individual consumer of uh, at the end of the day is the patient, why it needs to be patient centered. There's also the, the 
provider of the doctor in that system that needs to be accounted for. And they have a business model, right? We have our own business model of paying for insurance and cost of healthcare that we're managing. The hospital also has its own business model and payer and cost and, and, and staff and delivery of care and the expectations of, of a hospital system and that nowadays and the competing pressure and regulations. And then the insurer does and other uh, potentially other players. You just got to figure out who's buying, who's using. You have to design for all of them. And you then have to align your pitch to each one and realize who you should be asking money for, who you should be asking to use it, and who you should be, who's the ultimate decider of the patient. Does it provide benefit in some way, shape, or form? And if it's not the patient, it might be the IS team or some other operational component within the hospital. And these things, this is what you need to map out before you're approaching a hospital. So you have the right, you can start with the right type of ask and relationship. Brian Clinton can talk more about that because I think the story you were telling me about the, when we were talking pre before this podcast was how you navigated that to find that the value proposition oftentimes is more to the, the chief information officer in your product, in your service, and why that was a value to them is, I think, not obvious. And I don't know if that, how much you want to talk about that on, on now. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Brian Mullen. Um, yeah, I, I think there's kind of a, on a really abstract level, and I'd, I'd be curious what you think about this, but, you know, in general, I've found that providers oftentimes respond to um, two different types of value propositions as, as a customer and as a buyer of, of digital health technologies. And, and a third type of value proposition, they're, they're usually um, more of a prescriber as opposed to a buyer. Um, you know, I think the types of value propositions that I've found um, large health systems, so provider organizations really buying are um, tools that help them deliver care more efficiently. And, and oftentimes that would be an IT buyer, as you're saying. Um, a second uh, type of solution or value proposition that they might respond to is, is something that they could buy and then uh, garner reimbursement for uh, through some type of a service line. And that's you know, a traditional business model that the medical devices industry, like the, you know, medical device implants have used for a long period of time. And then, you know, the third type of value proposition is, is more of a clinical value proposition of, oh, hey, I have this prescription digital therapeutic. It improves clinical outcomes. You know, generally, in, in my experience, providers don't necessarily buy something that um, improves clinical outcomes without having any reimbursement because they don't have a business model that supports it. Um, but they are willing to prescribe something that's reimbursed for uh, reimbursed by a local payer, as you were saying. And, and actually, all three of those different types of value propositions have been really relevant to our AppScript business because really what we what the AppScript team really provides is a uh, really a health IT tool that integrates with the electronic medical record 
um, that enables a kind of uh, drag and drop integration um, for many different types of digital health apps, uh, digital content, uh, and connected devices. And really, the the challenge that we were able to address or solve for the IT team is how do you figure out the governance structure around what gets to be able to be prescribed through the EMR and what gets to be integrated in the EMR um, for the health system and um, and do that at scale across that particular system. Um, so that was really our value proposition is being able to reduce cost and complexity for the IT department. Um, Yes, we enabled kind of that second value proposition. You know, there are some um, uh, digital health apps that can facilitate remote patient monitoring and can facilitate reimbursement around that. And that was definitely something that um, as I was uh, kind of, uh, (laughs) um, you know, walking out the door at at AppScript, we were getting much more interested in. but also a really big uh, element is that third value proposition, which is, you know, when you have products that have clinical outcomes that might be um, reimbursed by a payer, that's definitely something that some of our U.S. clients were experiencing is, okay, our local health plan covers Omada Health, or our local health plan covers a Livongo. Um, we... We as the health system don't buy those Omada or Livongo tools, but we do want to enable our providers to prescribe them in an easy way to the extent that they may be seeing patients that have those products as a benefit in their benefit plan. Um, so d- I definitely have experience with a lot of those uh, uh, you know, different intersections with the provider. Yeah, so, so I want to pick up on that last point you were making is, so, so I think it's a really interesting case is like the value proposition to the that added value truly to the hospital operation side was making it easier for people to prescribe. So it cost the IS team less, the headaches for a doctor and doctor burnout were less. And because this is always, I think something is lost. The hospital always makes a decision on can this improve patient outcome quality and improve the patient experience like that. That's number one. And, and to do that, we need to be the hospitals need to be operationally efficient and execute and manage costs too, um, and make it easy and convenient for patients, which is an operational thing. So, can you help achieve those things? Are important. I think the what gets conflated sometimes, though. But it was your last point is you gave the IT IS a value proposition for the operations. But if you if if any one of the products on your platform were expecting the hospital to pay for that application per patient, that doesn't make sense for the hospital, right? Like that's the insurance provider's role to cover that app that's providing in, that prescription experience, just like a drug, to the patient. Just like the hospital doesn't pay for the medication, right? That the the doctor prescribes out, why they wouldn't pay for that digital app for you to have and just take a cost, right? Like, like the, that's just a pure cost to the hospital to try to acquire that where it's a savings. It's what the patient is paying their insurance provider for to provide that actual service. And if 
the patient is compliant and adherent and takes their medication, the insurance company over the long term is benefiting from that because they're a lower cost patient, right? That's why we wanted to move for preventive medicine. So right. it just that clarity of if you're just if you're adding costs to the hospital to deliver care and the hospital is not getting a benefit a return on that use of that tool, just like any tool that we would have, everything we buy, we get a return off of that. That's why we buy it. Um, it's really hard to make that case to the hospital. And I think the other end to that is I think you need, I think this is something that maybe we'll move into like the pilotitis stuff is I think one of the things that was challenging is there are a lot of digital health tools out there. There's a lot that are doing the exact same thing and the hospitals are seeing all of them and we're, they were, we were being inundated by it all the time. And the thing is a lot of them are good ideas. A lot of them could add a lot of value. Well, a lot of them could add value, but the amount of value that they were adding was very incremental. So it's hard to get the attention, the buy-in, the behavior change, the shift, the change, especially at the hospital environment to, to do that. And that, I think that's a challenging thing that I think gets lost of, it's not that there's not a lot of things that could prevent add value, but there's so many of them are discrete point solutions that are trying to charge and get a wedge. And actually, like if you did the math, there's a, not enough bundled reimbursement by the insurer for that procedure to cover the cost of all the digital health solutions that are being sold in that one procedure. So these are the challenges from a hospital is, is those that could really drive a change to the quadruple aim. Um, and I always get it wrong when I go to say that is uh, improved patient experience and outcomes, right? So those are two improved outcomes for patients, always improved quality of care, improved patient outcomes, uh, improved patient experience, uh, reduce cost and improve uh, doctor burnout and staff, like staff experience, right? That's what we worried about all the time. And, and a lot, to Brian's, Clancy's point, if we can be more operationally efficient, it will reduce costs. It will hit a lot of those things. Um, so that's why there's a big priority on that. If you listen, we were part of the Brigham IHUB and many hospitals were always part of M Mass Challenge Health Tech the last few years. If you listen to what's pitched on those, insurance providers, pr providers of hospitals, a big thing is it's either really improving patient outcomes or it's helping deliver care more efficiently and effectively, ideally to those who need it at the right time in the right place in the right environment and the right tool to do it so that they implement their, they consume their care in a way that they are adherent in, in receiving the benefit. So again, that will propagate reduction of cost, right? Which is what everyone's at, a big ask that patient, provider, everyone across the system is asking for. So it's always improving. Improvement is number one. So it gets to the clinical part that Brian Clancy was talking about. And I think this is a rub that's hard for a lot of digital companies on the clinical side. You do need to show a clinical outcome of benefit. So it's kind of maybe that pilotitis, definitely on the clinical side. Doctor, if you're asking a doctor to prescribe something, give it to a patient, and there's a whole wide range of this. You see this in, in how the medical device FDA is set up or the drugs are set up to account for that variation. There needs to be some trust and some data that the doctors can buy in to say, this is safe and effective if I give it to you. Or the risk benefit makes sense. Um, 
and that's something that uh, a hospital can be a partner with. If you're early on, you need to demonstrate that. Research hospitals are great for that. Um, and they can get you that credibility and that data that you can then use somewhere else, even when the hospital might not be your buyer down the line. They might not be the right fit for whatever it is, but if you need a proof point, uh, we used to do this a lot where we could be a really great collaborator to get you the proof and the data and the validation. We weren't always, and we try to be really clear about this, when we might not be the buyer at the end of that journey or the user at the end of the journey, just because large academic centers are unique within the broad spectrum of healthcare. Ryan, what, you, you've talked to more hospitals. I, I kind of know from a larger academic medical institution, and we worked with the community hospitals to some extent too, but we often said this is maybe a better product for Faulkner Hospital, which is our community hospital, than Brigham and Women's Main Campus. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that it depends, um, you know, really on the type of value proposition that you have. Um, I mean, there's definitely different um, cultural um, attitudes that are, are different at different types of health systems, uh, different type of um, provider entities. Um, you know, I think that a lot of... Um, digital health entrepreneurs are really interested out of the gate in linking their brand to the brand of a major academic medical center. However, what many of these companies end up finding is that large academic medical centers may be more difficult to work with or to your point, may not necessarily be the right customer or the right partner for them. Um, you know, some of the things that I've heard is that, you know, sometimes you don't get as favorable of terms with an academic medical center, or you may not get the attention uh, that you might otherwise receive uh, from uh, some of these organizations. Um, but it, it all depends on what you're trying to do. You know, if you have um, you know, if, if you're trying to pursue some sponsored research and there's a key opinion leader um, at a particular academic medical center that is very passionate um, about your product and about your value proposition, um, then that could be a wonderful fit uh, to, your, to your point, Brian Mon. Yeah, it's as you were talking. I think the the way uh, we got better at this uh, at the team at the iHub, and I I because I, I feel it. I was a startup too, and I um, we were really trying to be good at helping somebody understand: Are we like what's your strategy? Like we we would help guide anyone to anywhere that we felt we could be helped. Like the mission really is, and if you look at these hospitals, they are all a lot of many many of them have innovation teams, so they they are aware they have they spend a lot of money to advance innovation. They invest a lot of hours and FTEs into time and to do this. So think about it. Like I would the number of I mean we're screening a lot of startups and having a lot of meetings every day at these these institutions to try to consume collaborate advance and enhance care to patients through digital solutions or any other innovation um so they are these hubs that is the goal and the mission where we're there to help and direct and guide the most important thing and maybe this is some tips that we can go back and forth on brian 
is come with your strategy. I think one of the hardest, why, why us, why now? How can we help you for you to advance your business? So at some point, us or a patient or somebody else along the way can benefit from the innovation and the technology and the work you're doing. Um, I, I have that same conversation with doctors and researchers. It's the same thing. What is, what is the goal? What, what, what's the strategy here? Why us? Why now? Um, it's really, really hard when somebody comes to a, to a hospital or anyone in the care thing and says, you know, we're smart. We have this. We're trying to do this. It could help across the whole care spectrum. Where do you think we should start? Well, at large hospitals, you have any, if it's everywhere and anywhere, it makes it inactionable for me to help you. And I can't help you narrow that down, right? So like, I might give you suggestions off the top of my head versus being actionable where you say, here's my strategy, here's my plan. I would like to connect with cardiology or I would like to do this or I want to do a pilot here, but... And then maybe you can introduce us to the community hospital to implement it or whatever it is. What's your strategy? Then that can be activated by the innovation. The, the innovation team or the person you're reaching out to can act. We can give you direct feedback on that and say, wrong pathway, wrong plan, wrong model, great plan, great pathway, great model for us or not us, whatever it is, we can actually give direct feedback and we can actively act to try to make that collaboration, that connection, that introduction or start to clear a pathway to give you an opportunity within the, in the larger system. Um, so Brian, I don't know what, what other, like, I think that's the biggest thing for me is if you're going to knock on a hospital, there's actually two tips. I'll give my top two tips. That one. The second one is, especially in the digital world, um, this table stakes is so many things. Like the first thing you get is a screen of security, privacy, basic contracting that is just required to interact and engage with the hospital on the IT stuff. And like, there's some, so you have to be aware of that. You don't always have to come in the door perfectly ready to go. There will be advising and direction and, and some guidance that, but you need to be aware of what those basic expectations are and be not surprised if somebody says, we can't do that with you today because you haven't have this right contract in place of a BAA or you can't pass our security screen or whatever it is because it puts every patient's data at risk. Your interaction, your connection, if you were start to connect in with the hospital, it can put other people and other projects at risk. So that's why it's very strict on the IT privacy security side. Um, and again, the, our team would advise and guide and help people achieve that and get and create the right structure and barriers. So if somebody says that we can't give you that data today, it's for today because you aren't safe and compliant and secure enough oftentimes to access that. So the firewalls stay up. So Brian, what, what are the, I mean, those are my two tips. I don't know, especially on the IS, you, you've sold in and been the vendor to an IS and IT team and how to meet some of those things. I'm guessing once you had that in place, the conversation went a lot smoother with hospital number two, because you can say, look at, we have it. You walk in and you're now starting on step 10 instead of, you know, an educational step one. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, having gone through it um, a few times definitely helps uh, make the fourth, fifth, sixth 
uh, customer interaction that much better, as you say, because, you know, uh, you know, every, you know, every healthcare provider or health system is going to have its own risk assessment process. They're going to have their own security assessment. They're going to have their own privacy assessment. They're going to have um, their own preferred specifics to how they contract around uh, business associates agreements, which are the agreements that you have to make under the HIPAA law in order to exchange uh, protected health information. So that's always going to be different from institution to institution, but there's a lot of copy paste that you can do. You know, when you've answered 200 questions for, you know, let's just use Kaiser Permanente, then going to, you know, a partners or going to uh, another large health system um, you're going to be able to reuse a lot of that content. You're going to be able to reuse a lot of the same uh, kind of magic words around what your value proposition is and, and kind of um, answer, um, Brian, uh, what you referred to as kind of the why us, why now questions. It's like, hey, look, um, you know, after a few different clients, we got really comfortable talking about look, this is about digital health governance. Um, your clinicians are swamping your IT department with requests for one-off integrations of different apps. Like, let us help you solve that burning problem that is uh, becoming really uh, a major issue for your IT department. And, um, you know, that, uh, all of that really, really helped us to be more successful over time. Can, can I, I want to also note, this is a little inside baseball things. I know startups feel that sometimes they might, this might just be made hard to be made hard. There's a lot of things in the startup world that people make it hard just to see if you persevere, which I always hated when I was in a startup. Like just a lot of stupid stuff. I think investors do that a lot too. Like it takes nine months to 12 months. I think when I was raising money to get an angel investment on average, like why is it so hard? Um, mm -hmm. Anyways, um, so like there's some, the hustles aren't doing it to make you earn your stripes in some way to see if you're more persistent and whatever else that a VC might look for. The, the, the process that we put startups through, large tech companies went through, large medical devices went through, uh, companies went through, large pharma companies went through. And the researcher who's at the lab that might be using a vendor like the ADK group and some of those like, or coding it themselves they went through the same process. So everyone across the board from the ISIT security standpoint, the vetting through our innovation team for the digital health, they all went through the same review. Um, they didn't take all, um, the process was the same to evaluate all of those. Uh, what the iHub did, which I think is great, and I think a lot of other innovation teams, what we started to do was our process allowed different requirements and expectations um, and levels of access based off of what you wanted. How so? There's a customization to you. So if you're purely a backend operational tool, that's one. You know, the requirements to have clinical data to prove something out, and you're never going to have an IRB or institutional review re review board because you're not recruiting any patients. Why are we going to send you down an IRB path to get an approval? Right. So we tailored that a bit based off of how developed the product was, how viable it was versus how research it was. And there were different tracks for those. But where you started was the exact same if you were a researcher, a staff on the IS team, coding it yourself, working with a vendor, 
or it was a large medical device, pharma company or tech company. Now I mean large, I mean like think like Brigham and partners and like all anyone was going to go through that process. And no one was, was cutting the line because it was tailored to that specific project and application. Because as we all know, how diverse any given app was. So um, it's just something to think about. Like it's not, we're not playing favorites with anyone. No one was doing this to make it harder. That process was actually created to make it easier and faster to get to the right point. And maybe sometimes that'd be a faster no. And we try to make sure that happened. I think as in my startup days, like I learned getting to a fast no is better than being getting a, a long maybe. So yes is always best if you're if you're if you made the right ask, and no is the second best answer you could get, uh, or no not now but come back with X and talk to me then was probably actually the second best. But no or no but like maybe I don't know or not a clear no was the worst. So we 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 put a lot of effort to try to get to a fast no. I think that's something if you're working with a researcher clinician or a startup, if you can help people get to a fast no and clarity on what doesn't work is just as good as clarity on what does work and what a pathway forward is. Brian, what do you think about that? You're nodding a bit, but like am I too much of my startup kind of sharing some scars too much? Oh, no. I mean, the, uh, I mean, getting to a fast no, I mean, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the best practices that has started to emerge in the digital health space is that you should really try to be paid for your pilot work. And, you know, it, I, I would definitely say, you know, particularly if, and, and oftentimes this has to do with the unit economics of the particular digital health solution, um, you know, how important it is for you to get paid for your pilot work or whatever that first initiative is um, with, you know, in the context of a, of a healthcare provider, um, it is really challenging, but, you know, it might be way better to talk to 30 different organizations and get 29 no's, but get the one yes for, you know, a paid pilot program that's going to get the resources and the attention that you feel like you really need, as opposed to, you know, talking to, you know, maybe two or three organizations and, you know, every, everybody kind of says, oh, maybe we'll do it if it's free. And then you end up feeling as though in order to get traction, you need to uh, go at risk um, to work with, you know, one of those handful of organizations. Um, you know, I think people have lots of different experiences. So that's really just one lens through which to look at um, kind of uh, the architecture of what a good response is from a provider. Can, um, can I add a nuance to that? The yeah, paid sure. pilot part? Yeah, sure. If you're selling something that somebody's paying you for, you need to be delivering value at day one. Oh, of course. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a distinction that startups and or any company in their development of a digital tool mm -hmm need to realize, are they in the bin of, we? I want to learn how to build a product of which you will pay for eventually, mm -hmm. right? And because I need insight and I'm in the, the lean startup or Steve Lane, like whatever it is, versus I think I have a true minimum viable product today that I'm testing to see if you will pay for it. 
because I do, I do believe we will deliver value to you right away. And the other end to that is we can actually deliver that product reliably enough for the price point of which we're doing. So once you start to sell it, you're setting an expectation. It changes your business. Um, I, I, I lived that when I started to sell our product, it was a very different business operation because now you had to support customers and service tickets and whatever else that comes out of, I'm now paying you. So I have an expectation that this is a workable, usable product. Even right. that you, even if you gave me a discount, it still needs to deliver some value back because Absolutely. now you've made a value. All of this is about value exchange, right? You've asked me for money. You better deliver something that's more valuable than the $5 I gave you, at least slightly. Mm-hmm. And it better work too, right? So like, I think that's something that's strategically to think about. Again, it goes back to that strategic question. Are you, what are you looking at in your journey? And where are you of that of pre-product? Have a product trying to figure out what the pricing model is and maybe you're flexible, but you're charging and maybe getting a little bit further to, I have a product, like, like Brian, Brian, what you're selling is you have a product that's up and running and sold and you're selling it, right? You don't need another pilot. You're probably passing on those, those clients. It's proven, it's up and robust, but there are different tiers. But if you're going in there thinking, you're going to charge for a pilot when you're unproven and you're, this is your first customer ever and you don't know if the value will be delivered. That's a really hard sell because you're asking, because the flip side of that is think about how much risk you're asking the hospital to take. I think that's something that is forgotten a lot. And I, I mean, I do want to be clear. I do no longer work for Brigham and partners, but like the, the empathy side of that is like the, somebody has to screen you. Right. So every one of these startups that we have a meeting with and listen to and try to connect to our doctor and find a champion for and then screen and evaluate and put the contracting in place, that barrier, that is a lot of time, effort and energy that the hospital is I mean, passionate about and covering the cost of that for every startup that they're working with and to then ask to be paid like it, it, and then have the behavior change and the implementation of that. The value has to be there when you're asking for that cash. Right, because it is a big risk, and then we're also risking the fact that it won't work as you think it will because you're a startup. Right, and how are we going to help manage that with our patients and our doctors and our clients? And mm-hmm. I say our again, I don't work there, but like that was the mindset because there is risk because we had to go in and prep them for the fact that this is innovation and mm-hmm. it might not go perfect. And are you ready for that? And when it doesn't go perfect, we go, like, don't worry, right. it's innovation, and we we're, we're working with the startup to fix this, right? And it's not like the same as working out of the box Fortune 500 company like GE or Medtronic or whoever else. Right. That either. So like just understanding some of that, I think, goes a long way because mm-hmm. we did put a lot of deals together in a lot of collaborations and a lot of successful companies, were, I think, worked through us. I'm sure there's just as many, there's many that say, well, we were, uh, I'll talk about me. I'm sure there's many of the people like, yeah, he was a jerk. But I also think there's many that said, no, they were very, very helpful. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, and, and that's, that's kind of, um, you know, if you look at the Venn diagram of, um, you know, like all the different digital health entrepreneurs and then, you know, the other circle is all the different health systems around the country, you know, the number of early stage startups that can credibly charge, you know, one or more health systems is pretty low. So, so, you know, you're, you are kind of looking for the needle in the haystack for, you know, 
kind of the perfect partner who's, you know, at a particular stage of their journey where they really need you and, and you really need them and you're willing to invest the right level of attention and resources in some initial engagement. Um, you might want to call it a pilot, but people people are uh, really kind of concerned about that term because of uh, kind of the notoriety of, uh, of the pilotitis problem. Um, maybe I can kind of define that, but um, Please do. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, part of uh, really the history of our industry, really the digital health industry has been uh, this concept of pilotitis, which um, can really be explained as a condition that affects both digital health companies and their customers. And it's really characterized by an overinvestment in some of the steps that add limited value relative to the steps that create um, a lot of value for both organizations, uh, resulting in a perception of a lack of value overall or a lack of productivity um, in the relationship that you know makes something that should be fun, exciting, and uh, mutually beneficial to something that you know is is uncomfortable or or not fun or 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 not beneficial. So, you know, I think one of the things that we've been really talking about is, you know, you could um, invest a lot more time um, in something that isn't value added. For example, you could do turns and turns and turns on a contract um, because you don't have a good understanding uh, to just take a digital health entrepreneur's perspective. For example, if you don't understand the HIPAA regulation and you don't understand whether or not um, you're going to need access to protected health information. And if you use that contracting process as a learning experience, then that's, that's not a good use of, the, your provider counterpart's time, and it's not really a good use of your time. You should come into that experience um, having a good understanding of the types of agreements and the types of things that you're going to need to agree to and the types of questions that you're going to be asked. Um, I so want to second that. Like that was, as somebody, like I think, especially if you're working with an innovation team, and I've talked to a lot of people in different innovation teams um, at different hospitals and we go to the conferences and we huddle over in the corner and like commiserate at times. And I think like if you get to know the people who choose to work in that environment, like I, I described the job at one point as making everyone feel uncomfortable all the time because and I'm a middle child. So maybe I was born for this. It's like, because you're like pushing on somebody in the hospital, like go try innovation. Don't worry. Like it's good. It'll be safe. Like disrupt how your, your clinical workflow is. And then we have to like push on the startup and be like, I don't know how much, like you're not really adding the value that you're saying, like, and please don't make me go back to contracting again, because like, it's not going to happen. Right. And like, and I, I always felt like the more to what Brian was getting at is like, I think it was different six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago but there are no knowns. And I always, it was hardest for me to get excited and put that extra energy in because I felt it was a waste of our energy of, and we like moved mountains for certain, like we would move a mountain for you. Like 
we love innovation to try to be like, that's the mission. That's why we take those jobs. Trust me, almost everyone would get paid more if they were at a big biotech company doing this or in a startup themselves. Like, but we love to see it, try to get over it and used. And the fact, like, if you were fighting over a line in a contract that will never get changed and be like, you're trying to negotiate with a multi-billion dollar institution over indemnification or HIPAA compliance or something like that, like, or like really nuanced details of IP, like my time was better served for you and everyone else to fighting the things that were unique to your challenge and unique to innovation, fighting the known knowns and somebody coming in and not really prepared for the known knowns or not being a learning partner and like really like, Oh, I didn't know that. And like learn quick that was always the hardest. It was hardest for us. It was the hardest project to move forward. They're the ones that have the longest tail that everyone talks about. Because when you have to go through seven iterations of a contract that probably should have just been signed on day one, because like they're, they're, they're fairly standard. Um, that was always hard because now we're like seven weeks in and a, a basic BAA wasn't signed. And like a BAA is there, like if you go to Mass Challenge Health Tech and some other groups, um, ONC is working on this. So there's now some no knowns, like there's some basic like examples of what a, a VISP is or a security screening would be, or um, uh, a BAA would be and expectations for the types of things you might be asking in hospital. It's, there are no knowns. Like work on those yourself, be prepared, be a partner in that you're going to work on those if you come up to a new one that you didn't know so that I can go try to figure out how to convince the chief of something or some, the chair of a department or whatever it is, um, the cha- train the staff on your app, right? Like those were things like we would be pushing culturally or internally or helping prep the doctors to be okay in that or creating a new pathway or making sure you got the right definition of yes, what level of yes we could say to for you to do that study in that environment. Those are the things that you can best use an innovation team for. So like knowing the known knowns is huge. And some of that too is allows you to raise the appropriate amount of money. I think that's always a hard thing when I was a startup is how much money do you raise in a given round? If you know the sales cycle is 12 months for a clinical facing app or three months for an operational app where you can get up and running and do a pilot and maybe get paid for it. Those are two different amounts of money you might need to raise, but don't expect if you're a clinical app that needs a clinical study done to be able to be contracted, bought and implemented in weeks or months, right? Like that variation of sales cycle really varied to the type of digital solution it was and the stage that they were to be purchasable. Um, So that's just kind of like use your innovation team as a benefit unlock their potential, use them to fight the fight that needs to be fought. And I think that's true when you're picking your pilot, pick the pilot that is the critical thing and not just, uh, oh, we, we Brigham use this or MGH uses or Kaiser use this. Great. Well, where's the paper? Where's the data? What was the result is your next question. And why haven't you, why can't you sign a BAA if they used it? Right. People are now known about these things. So we're going to ask those questions pretty quick. Be prepared for them. But it's really at the end of the day, it is very practical of like, it's going to be screened by a, a VISP was one of the things that use our Veracode scan or the, these very standard industry tools that those scans are going to happen. Um, so just just do it. 
and show it in the result versus so when our our team looks at it and starts to review your diagrams and the code, it goes super quick. It goes in days instead of months. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, being conversant in these different topics around information security and around um, different requirements of HIPAA and um, just core questions around, you know, whether or not you're using protected health, uh, whether you have to store protected health information. Um, these are just absolutely critical questions. And, you know, I, th I think it doesn't necessarily need to be someone on your advisory board. It just needs to be part of the DNA of your company in any way you can possibly get that. Well, it could be. And, and just the more important it is your success, the more important it is to have an expert on your team that can do it, right? Um, like there's there's other apps and solutions and care. And I think I think one of the challenges with conversations like this is, and I think I, I'd love to just go back to that first point, make sure you know your customer, the user, the buyer in your strategy. Because um, like Brian mentioned, HIMSS and these others, many different digital health is just so ubiquitous now. It's really technologies and tools to enable delivery of care, improvement of care, execution of some type of, of care and healthcare, right? And some are software versus the traditional scalpel or other tool, right? Um, knowing what value proposition you add and what your customer is matters because not everyone needs all the things that we just started to talk about. If you don't have any patient data and you're not integrated into the healthcare system or your app on a phone that a doctor might recommend so that you count your steps easier or track your diet, that might live on Brian's platform, but never touch the hospital in any way other than the doctor knowing about it and being able to click two clicks to make sure the prescription gets written for it, right? Do you really need an InfoSec team and security and HIPAA and be like, probably not. Brian would know better than I would on that. I don't want to give it. But like, so that diversity is where you have to know where you are and it changes the ask of what you are. And it's really not one size fits all. It's really nuanced. And I think in fairness, uh, why people start at hospitals is hospitals can be a great collaborator in so many aspects of almost every one of these product, project, products and services because care flows through. And there's a knowledgeable person that will be part of the use or the conversation about that because they connect with a patient. The patients connect into healthcare systems at some point. So even if they buy a app that is a wellness app, they're gonna ask their doctor about it maybe at some point, right? So there's insight and information and real value that the hospitals and the care providers and the providers can add. And you can see them as a co-developer, designer, collaborating your product, just understand different types of asks of their time. You might need to compensate them for that, depending on their own personal stuff, the rules of the hospital, whatever it is, and how much you're really asking them to help participate in your design. Again, probably this, where, what stage of company you're in. Um, but like, that's why it's a, they should be part of the conversation. You shouldn't avoid them most of the time, but understand what part of the conversation you're having. Are they really your end buyer? Because if you're trying to ask them to buy and they're not your buyer and never will be your buyer, then that's a waste of time again, right? That's a waste of your time, effort, and energy. But if you go with them and say, I want you to collaborate so we buy, we build a better tool to make your life easier, doctor, 
and we're going to have this person pay for it because they're getting the benefit, that's a different conversation, right? But if you go in the, the CIO, the chief information officer and say, look at, you have this headache, you're trying to get, every doctor's trying to implement, uh, prescribe a new app. There's new reimbursement codes for it, but it's a nightmare for your IS team. We'll take that off your plate. That's a, that's a very clear, like do that. And oh, by the way, how can we make this better for you? These are different conversations and how you approach it really matters of how well you get the benefit of the institution that really wants to help and consume these products. Like nobody in the hospital will say, we don't think patient-centered care is, is, is the right way to go. Everyone wants to improve the experience for patient. Everyone wants the patient to be better. That's why they work where they work. Um, and, and so many people want new tool solutions to enable that, to reduce the doctor burnout and burden, to improve the execution, to unlock the capability that we're all seeing, and to also work in this realm of healthcare service as insurance and payer and the Affordable Health Care Act and everything else, which have these other cost pressures that we're all feeling. And how does a hospital help them do something, help them achieve these goals? Um, and they want the help to do it. Um, if you ask, and they're there to help. Almost every hospital has an innovation team, at least the system at the system level. And they're literally there to help. Yeah. I, I feel like Brian should have a last word. I kind of gave my like little, like, <laughs> hopefully that was a positive hope, but like, I wonder if Brian has a last. Well, I, I think we've been talking a lot about providers. Like this has been like a really provider centric um, chat, but I don't know, maybe I could just make a statement uh, about, you know, really the most successful digital health companies above and beyond electronic medical record vendors um, have really, really avoided the traditional healthcare system defined as the, the healthcare provider to become successful. So here, maybe I can give you a little bit on that. So, so Brian Mullen, I know that we've been talking a lot about healthcare providers, but I think that we would really be you know, in remiss if we didn't mention the fact that there are a number of very successful digital health companies that are um, being successful almost because they're avoiding uh, traditional healthcare providers. So, you know, when I think about um, digital care providers like Livongo Health or Omada, um, who don't go through a traditional provider to patient distribution channel, but instead are distributed through employers or payers. Or even when I think of um, prescription digital therapeutics companies like Better or Paratherapeutics that instead of using traditional site-based um, clinical trials, they're actually opting for virtual trials that might be recruited through you know, a Facebook or um, a Craigslist ad or, or, or something like that. You know, I think, I think it is interesting um, that, um, you know, these companies have kind of tried to avoid the provider almost, or, or maybe they're not trying to avoid the provider, but they just saw a bigger opportunity elsewhere. Um, I'm kind of curious, you know, what your thoughts are on, you know, whether that trend to kind of avoid um, the traditional kind of throughway or central pathway through healthcare, which is the provider, you know, whether that trend will ever reverse itself where, um, 
we start seeing the provider as um, a great way uh, for some of these innovative digital health companies to either A, get studies done, or B, um, make money um, uh, through uh, through that provider-to-patient channel. Yeah, I mean, I, I know this is a little bit of a, probably a cop-out or just like, it seems like I'm selling one thing is, I mean, I, I've studied startups and innovation and teach it. So like, I'm not saying this as like with a provider hat on, I think it's just truly and fundamental of finding the right customer for what you're selling, right? So like uh, one of the one of the things I used to say, because um, I, I, I learned in the medical, I had a medical device company, right? It is as my startup, it was has a whole host of challenges and they're very well documented in how to bring medical devices and technology to market. And that, that thing is there's a difference between being a, uh, a medical product in a not in a wellness health product or some, or non-medical product, medical grade, let's call it. I, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't know what word to call the other, but like when you start to get into the hospital, like there, there is a, care is delivered in a certain way for certain reasons and it's to protect patients. That's why the FDA exists. These are good things that we should have, HIPAA compliance and all that stuff. It doesn't mean that that is an end-all and be-all of healthcare. We're seeing that more than ever where CVS is a clinic as much as in a care point or as anywhere else um, in, in these changes and in, in so much care is paid for by companies, these large companies and payers. So there's different needs. And that's why like insurance companies, the business models make different sense for an insurance company to offer massage therapy over your doctor. Like your doctor hopes you do that. Or Firefly is a really interesting new primary care model, right? Um, So I think hospitals in the traditional institutions have a place and will have a place. I think we're seeing a lot of change because of the Affordable Health Care Act and the benefits of that of preventative medicine, chronic care management, um, and these other things that are much more longitudinal, where if you have an employee who works there for 20 years and you want to keep them to work for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, you, it's the incentive for the institution to keep them healthy, right? So the, the business model, the value propositions, the expectations, the um, requirements, the regulations are different in those things. And so like, it's, it could be a great fit for a lot of digital health to be there, but there's also a lot of healthcare that's delivered. And I would still say like, even those companies that are not going through the provider, I bet you they talk to a lot of doctors and care providers and people in those institutions to design their product in a way that is also valuable and works in that extension of care. Because if, if it didn't extend into the direct care that the patient needs, the patient's going to go back and say, well, this was useless to me. Why do I keep on spending my time tracking this when my doctor doesn't look at it and doesn't think it's valuable at all? Now, I'm, I'm giving a stark example of that, but like, I think that's kind of the question. It, it does come back to your value, who benefits from it, who will pay for it, and why you're asking that person to do it. And the hospital isn't the totality of care. And we're moving to more patients having with higher deductibles in the, in the insurance, like patients need to take more responsibility because of the higher deductible plans and companies have a higher different model. So where, where's the right fit for your solution? There's so much opportunity. And I think that traditional mindset of everything going through the hospital and the provider and the care system 
is changing because digital health unlocks that. Not many people were going to buy a scalpel before or a blood, like in the past, a, a, a glucose monitor, like a, a heart rate monitor or defibrillator. So there's advancements in technology that are pushing that out so people can have it outside of that realm and have benefit from it and not be a vitamin or a like a nice to have entertaining thing to stay healthy, but not health apply to your direct care. Does that make sense, Brian? Like, I know that was a lot, but like, it, it's a hard question, but I think it's, it's an opportunity and it's a good opportunity to have because there's more opportunities as a patient to get better care in more ways. Yeah. I, I think one of the main takeaways that I have, Brian, from your perspective on it is that, you know, health systems and providers are always going to be a source of credibility um, for the industry. And, and we see that with AppScript all the time. We have, you know, many products um, that clinicians use AppScript to prescribe, such as Headspace for stress management, that isn't an FDA cleared product, but- yeah, They're working on that, I think, right? Well, well they have- Doing more uh, research, right, for mental health. Yeah, but um, that, you know, still treats, you know, a, or, or, or addresses an important element. And, you know, maybe, you know, even in a world where, you know, a prescription grade headspace product isn't a major revenue driver for that company, um, you know, having that credibility of being able to say, hey, this is something that um, is recommended by clinicians, I think is important, maybe not just from a marketing perspective, but also from, you know, just a cultural uh, perspective inside of that company. But yeah, I think, I think it is really interesting, though, what, what's going to happen, whether, you know, digital health um, is going to be fully adopted by traditional providers or whether digital health is going to disrupt and dislodge traditional providers. And, you know, I, I think I have a slight lean towards the latter, just the way that things are trending in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. So I, I jump in is they, they're adopting it. It might not be at the speed of which the digital health community wants it to be, but like, I think the proof is I, I have a draft of a blog on this, like, and I, I actually wrote a thing like we should be accelerating the IS and IT teams because overnight they went from televisits being, you know, tens to hundreds on any given week to thousands in a week. That, that means you they've adopted. They built the infrastructure, the adoption of EHRs like Epic and Cerner. Those things have all been built. So the infrastructure that's being built for this and, and being used, the pain point has it the value proposition hasn't been great enough to really adopt it as fast as it is, or else they would have. And I think the proof of that is when COVID happened, um, the adoption went Scott, because the need changed and right? the value proposition of digital health may happen. But think about all the things, how much care is being delivered because health systems had already adopted digital health tools, asynchronous ones, apps, telemedicine, the infrastructure was all there. They were already building it and they all had systems to figure out how to buy from vendors. Uh, it might not be perfect. I think there'll be a lot learned through this, but it was there. They were adopting it. I think the interesting thing, and, and I think this is another thing from um, COVID, and I think, Brian, to like build on what you're saying is what we haven't talked about today, and everybody understands this, and I think it's been highlighted, is social determinants of health outside of the walls of the hospital are a bigger indicator, I think, of you know 
having a stable place to live that's clean and safe, having food and being able to eat healthy and food, like having general, like these are bigger opportunities and bigger problems that drive so much care that ends up in the hospital setting. And the hospitals would love more solutions, I bet you, for that managing a social disorder and treating the patients and filling that need. And I think digital health based with communities and companies and the society, that's where huge, huge opportunity is outside the walls of the hospital because the hospitals are limited, right? We can't go home. Like they're doing more to go home with you and digital apps are enabling that, but we can't change how much you get paid because you're getting minimum wage and you have a family of four and you can't live, move your house to a safer environment for your kid with asthma. You can't, you know, buy organic food every day, right? So those are the things I think societally we're starting to see more. I think healthcare professionals and population health management people have been talking about that for a long time. I think we're really seeing the impact of that with COVID and the disparities that we're seeing. So I think that's a huge opportunity for digital health. So I, I think that latter part of where else can we improve care that is outside the walls of the hospital is great. I think acute care and the, the, a lot of the services hospitals provide will be here because of the nature of healthcare and the injury or the condition. But I think so much opportunity is outside to improve health and digital is, that's the potential for digital, right? I think so. I think, I don't know. I almost think, um, you know, in the high margin functions of a hospital, like, you know, treating, you know, orthopedics, treating oncology, treating um, cardiology, I feel like those areas will differentiate themselves with digital health tools. But I think the low margin areas like diabetes prevention programs, chronic disease management, I, I have a feeling that, you know, all of that is going to be unbundled and providers are just going to let that business all slip away to, you know, the Lavangos and the Amadas of the world. Like, you know, please take all of this low margin diabetes prevention program, cardiac rehab, pulmonary rehab. We don't, we don't want it. We don't make any money off of it. We're not particularly good at it. Like just give it away to some digital health company. Yeah. I mean, they're all, they're all looking at their business models. I mean, the, the people who are running the hospitals, and if you listen, I went to the World Medical Innovation Forum yeah. uh, that Partners puts on every year and I've gone. And if you go to these things and listen to the CIOs and see, like and the CEOs, they know they're all assessing the business models and where hospitals, and they've been doing this since the Affordable Healthcare Act has passed. The landscape, the, the disruption in healthcare was the Affordable Healthcare Act being passed. That was the major one. COVID's like the second major one, but like everyone's reassessing their business model and where the value is, what should they deliver, what assets they have, how can they improve care and deliver care in that way in a cost-effective way. So like, I think you're right, Brian. Like I, I, I don't know that for sure, but like they are, I know that we're, we're constantly looking at what really should the hospital be doing and where are there new opportunities that we should be extending care and leveraging di- digital tools and where sh- we shouldn't be in there and investing time in that. So um, that's a constant conversation at the hospital. Um, they're not, they don't have their head in the sand and going, oh, it's going to be always like this forever. Like they know CVS and Aetna is a big change, right? Haven is a big change in, in how the landscape is. Hims and these other companies are changing the landscape around them. We're aware, uh, we were aware. I know that in the conferences, uh, the leadership was aware, but so much opportunity, both for the hospital and the provider to find new services, to improve care, reduce costs. 
as well as being like, maybe they're going, I'm so glad somebody else is trying to work on this social determinant of health or this chronic condition, this portion of the chronic condition, because we can't, we don't have enough doctors to try to have that many patient visits that's required right now today or something like that. So it's interesting. I I don't know. I I think it's a, there's so much more opportunity right now in digital health that's growing and so much of it isn't going to be part or through the hospital, but the hospital, I think, or the provider system is part of that and just always account for it because they're a user or an influencer or a researcher or a co-designer or sometimes the buyer. Mm. I'm going to stop you guys right there. Um, This has been a great conversation. I actually was going to ask a question about how coronavirus really, I thought the same thing as like, it's opened the door to opportunities to really get more technologies in because they're needed, which then that means they're, it's being adopted quicker. So I'm glad you guys talked about that. Um, One of the takeaways for me, just coming from the the side of um, working with a lot of startups is we see a lot of technologies that come through that are created by really like someone with a clinical or technical background that creates, let's say an application, they, they finish it, they bring it to us and they're like, all right, like we're coming to Nemec. Can Nemec help us kind of build that strategy or how we're going to get it around get it to market. Um, And just from based on your conversation, what we've seen is it's better to really start thinking about that business strategy and really all the stakeholders and the value you're bringing before you finish the, the technical part of that product. Because usually when these products come in and they're done, it's so hard. We can't get it to market. There's competitors. They haven't looked into the competitors. They haven't looked at how it's going to be adopted. Um, So I'm glad that that's a takeaway for me. And I think a lot of our audience is think about who your stakeholders are. Think about who your customers are. Think about your value proposition while you're making your your product, um, even though you know that there's a need for it and there's clinical value because it's really just going to, I think, accelerate um, your technology to market in the long run. Yeah, and Danielle, that's really more where I spend my time for the last, since yeah. I was in grad school. So like, if you yeah. ever want to have that conversation of like, that, that's a whole nother can of yeah. worms. I'd um, love to. But uh, yeah, you, you, I mean, it, it's true. And, and like, that's kind of a key thing is like, it doesn't make a difference to your startup or in the hospital. A mm. product's a product and there's some basic things you got to do to make it successful. Yeah. Well, thank you guys very much. And for any listeners, I guess, based on this conversation and you're making applications in the digital health space, like feel free to reach out to Nemec. You'll be able to work with people like Brian and Brian and the rest of our network um, that we can pull in to really accelerate and make sure that your path to market um, is successful. So thank you both Brian's. Brian Clancy, um, I know you've asked this, I've asked you this before, but what is the best way for anyone to reach you or get a hold of you if they want to? Oh, always, always. Uh, I'm, I'm big on social media. I might be a little less big on it in, in the new role, but my LinkedIn is generally a good way to, um, you know, read a lot of blogs that I've put out um, on the industry. Um, you can learn more about uh, this exciting uh, job opening that we have uh, on my AppScript team, my former AppScript team. Um, so definitely check out my LinkedIn to see all types of different content and to connect. Cool. And Brian Mullen, LinkedIn for you or email or anything. LinkedIn would be, would be best. Um, and just, 
Uh, similar to the tip uh, I gave, don't just give a cold one. Write that little message and say, heard you on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> interested to you know connect more or whatever. Um, you know, just a blank connection is always hard sometimes. So like, why? why? Uh, so so that would be great. Uh, LinkedIn is definitely the best. I'm going to try to be more following Ryan Clancy's lead and write a little bit more. Writing is not my strength, but uh, I'm going to try to do some more for more of that on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much. 